It's 2011. Barack Obama is in charge of the U.S. The Arab Spring is sweeping the Middle East. People are starting to use a new app called Instagram. And Josh Levine is a student at a small liberal arts college, trying to figure out what to do with his life. I think going into senior year, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do after school. Pondering his future, he decides to attend a talk by Andrew Yang. You might remember Yang as a 2020 U.S. presidential candidate. But back in 2011, he was an up-and-coming tech entrepreneur. He just started a program called Venture for America, and he was in recruitment mode. But Andrew Yang laid out this pitch for smart young people, recent college grads, going to cities that college grads don't typically go to and working for startups and making a difference. The idea behind Venture for America is to train fresh-faced grads to become entrepreneurs in so-called emerging American cities, not your New York's or Los Angeles's. The cities at the time were Detroit and Las Vegas and Cincinnati and Providence, Rhode Island and New Orleans. And I think that just really appealed to me. Because that's the sort of place Josh is from. I love New Haven. It's a great city to grow up in. I, I mean, everything was there. I grew up in a neighborhood where I was in the minority as a white person. And I felt like I learned and was challenged so much by that experience. But as a post-industrial city, New Haven is also marked by poverty and lack of opportunity. That's precisely the sort of thing Venture for America says is its mission to tackle. You don't move there because it's popular. You end up there because you look around and like the people who are there are more likely to stay there longer and oftentimes you're going through a harder time together. Josh has fond memories of his New Haven upbringing, playing basketball and football. I mean, soccer. He's in the U.S. I thought I was going to be a professional soccer player. That was my favorite sport. I had just won MVP at some big soccer camp I had gone to, and I just thought that was just what I loved to do. But as a kid, he had an experience that would forever shape his perspective on life. So when I first got diagnosed, I thought, okay, you know, this will go away. When Josh was 12 years old, he was diagnosed with a hip condition that affected his ability to walk. Sports-loving Josh found himself in a lot of pain and often on crutches. But he quickly made the best of it, learning to play basketball in a wheelchair. My wheelchair basketball team in Connecticut was people from a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different ages. That was a huge part of my upbringing. I started with them when I was 14. I think the next youngest person was like 23. So it was me and a bunch of adults, and we would travel together and go to tournaments. It was an education, spending time with people of different backgrounds and ages, all trying to excel against the odds. It gave Josh a knack for optimism and a belief in the importance of community. Plus, he comes from a socially-minded family. My mom is an elder law attorney. My dad worked for the Department of Developmental Services for pretty much his whole career. He's retired now. And my oldest sister is a teacher, educator, has been her whole career. My other sister runs programs at a senior center. This all instilled in him a desire to do good and to give back. So, as a college senior, when Andrew Yang offers up this chance to bring new life to a struggling city, create jobs, build community, and leave it a better place. And not enough talent heading to other environments, other industries, and other types of companies. And so our goal is to drive more talent to these companies in Providence, Baltimore, Detroit, and other cities where young people can have a very positive impact and learn a lot. 
it just hit all of my buttons. I was like, I want to move to one of these cities anyway. Like, this is the kind of place that I'm interested in. He made it sound really competitive. I didn't think I was going to get in, but I definitely wanted to apply. And so I was sold right away. I was like, this sounds perfect. Josh polishes off an application, sends it off, and waits. And my biggest fear was that I wasn't going to be able to find a startup that I thought was interesting or that I thought did any good in the world, which is something I really wanted to do. And I thought I really wanted to go to Detroit. I was sure I did not want to go to Vegas. That was the only place I was sure I didn't want to go to. I'd never been before, and I had no interest in going. Really not up my alley. No, no interest in gambling or just what I had known about the culture. A few months later, he gets a call. I remember I was like in my bedroom and I could tell that there was like something he was going to share. It's a coordinator from Venture for America. And he said, I know that you really don't want to go to Vegas, but just like, hear me out. Let me tell you about this project that's happening. You might only think of Vegas as gambling and the strip, the coordinator says. But it's actually so much more than that. It's a place that suffered from decades of neglect, but has huge potential. The coordinator goes on to describe how a wealthy businessman who made it big from a previous venture is launching an initiative called the Downtown Project. It's going to transform a part of the city that's basically barren right now, a blank canvas. And Josh could be at the heart of that transformation. Tony Shea, who I don't even know if I'd heard of at that point, he's investing $350 million of his own money to redevelop the downtown area of Las Vegas and split that money between real estate investments, small businesses, tech companies, education, and healthcare. Tony Shea, once the CEO of Zappos, an online shoe store. Bear with me, because I know shoes might sound mundane, but Zappos was anything but. Since the early 2000s, it had built its success on a company culture of joy, fun, and community. On a typical afternoon, you'll see a potluck lunch, a parade, Slick dance moves and a guy in a leopard suit. Now, Zappos wasn't your average tech company and Tony wasn't your average tech CEO. Both were beloved by the tech world and the public alike, celebrated for their new way of doing business. Zappos was at the top of the list of best places to work. Its customers were more like passionate fans. Happiness is great for business. In 2008, Zappos hit a billion dollars in sales and hasn't looked back. With Tony at the helm, Zappos was often said to be the happiest company in America. And eventually, even Amazon took note. Zappos is now so successful that last fall, Amazon paid $1.2 billion to acquire it. Now, Shea wanted to try his ethos on an actual place. And through his focus on fun, happiness, and the power of tech startups, he wanted to turn downtown Las Vegas into, quote, the most community-focused large city in the world. The idea of getting to be a part of that scope of project focused on downtown, I mean, on a neighborhood, I really didn't have to hear any more than that to know that that was where I wanted to go. Josh's initial doubts quickly evaporate. I was like, ah, shit, I guess I'm going to Vegas. I'm Nastran Tavakoli-Farr, and from Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci, this is The Cost of Happiness, Episode 1, What Happens in Vegas. 
What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. As a journalist, I've been covering the business and tech world since the early 2010s, when things like WeWork and Uber were just starting. And back then, as you might recall, the mood was optimistic. Startups were growing on trees. Entrepreneurship was the hottest thing around. Venture capital money was flowing freely. Many of us, myself included, were convinced that technology was changing our world for the better. Facebook was a place to reconnect with long-lost friends. Tesla was going to usher in a green revolution. Peter Thiel was giving money to bright undergrads to drop out of college and start businesses that would solve humanity's biggest challenges. It seemed obvious tech would solve our problems, from dirty laundry to global hunger. In fact, this is what led to my interest in tech in the first place. Like Josh, I was an idealistic kid. I'd gone off to study economics at a very serious university precisely because I wanted to do good. And the world of entrepreneurship, well, it was about nothing but optimism and the belief that business can be a powerful vehicle for doing good. What is the new mission of Facebook? So our new mission is to bring the world closer together. That's the future we could have, where the curve slowly rolls over and goes to zero. No incremental CO2. Stop worrying about the bottom line because it's not about that. Redefine success and fulfillment as something greater than yourself and the rest will follow. The mission of We Grow and quite honestly the collective we that we're all living under is to elevate the world's consciousness. The sharing economy is commerce with the promise of human connection. People share a part of themselves and that changes everything. We're making drivers' lives a hell of a lot better. They're making a lot more money. They're making ends meet. They're living their American dream, and Uber's helping them do that. This is the context in which Josh sets off for Vegas. But when he arrives, it's a bit of a shock. I couldn't believe how empty it was. You still had the Las Vegas signage and the Fremont East signage and the neon, but mostly it was just empty. I mean, there were just full square blocks in the heart of downtown that were nothing. The absences are overwhelming. It's a world away from the glitzy Vegas Strip, just five miles south. The downtown project clearly has its work cut out. Its goal, to turn these vacant lots into a lively, vibrant neighborhood by investing in tech startups and small businesses. Josh is about to dive right in. There were probably about 20, 25 people working as part of the downtown project at the time. 
Josh and the other Venture for America fellows spend those early days getting oriented and learning about the different strands of the project. The key verticals were the real estate, healthcare, education, small business, and tech. And so we got to meet each of those folks and then sort of express our top three preferences. And then they chose which one we would be in. And he finally gets to meet the man behind it all, Tony Shea. I just have this memory of being in a room with, must have been 10 people, you know, leaders in the downtown project when we were first sort of meeting them. And sometime, not maybe just a few minutes going by before Tony introduced himself. And I realized, like, I had not even noticed that he was in the room. He was had just been really quiet and reserved and didn't stand out in the way that I certainly expected someone of his stature and experience to, to do. Tony, this super successful tech entrepreneur, he's nothing like what Josh had in mind. He's soft-spoken and introverted, casually dressed in jeans and plaid shirts. I think maybe he was a billionaire at the time, I don't know. Definitely, you know, many, many, many millions. I definitely expected him to be more of your typical gregarious, rich guy, and he was not that at all. It turns out that Tony's reserved but relatable approach has a big impact on the vibe of the downtown project. It makes the whole environment feel a lot more accessible, like they're all in it together. He was not in any, any tower. I mean, I must have seen him almost every day, if not every day. And so there were a lot of quick encounters, but it was often a little awkward. He was like a little awkward <laughs> in a way that I thought was really charming because like when a billionaire's a little awkward, it's like, wow, that's a lot better than what most billionaires, <laughs> you know, how, how what you expect or what I expected. It was kind of sweet. Josh is assigned to work with a doctor named Zubin Damania. He's a friend of Tony's who, outside of treating hospitalized patients, also writes comedy rap songs under the name Z-Dog MD, and he has a really big YouTube following. He's known as an ambitious straight shooter, and Zubin's been tasked with building a new tech-driven healthcare clinic in underserved downtown Vegas. The idea, according to Zubin, is to create a clinic that would be, quote, accessible to the people who make the food and the beds for tourists on the Strip. Josh is involved in every phase of the project, from the ground up. First, we had to find a space. I was the one who was doing most of the looking for properties and reaching out to realtors and taking tours. But in that time, we had to come up with a name for the business. We had to come up with branding for the business. We had to figure out who our patients were going to be, which is not so straightforward in healthcare in general, because it's not like you open a bagel shop and then you're just like, anyone can come get a bagel. We want everyone who wants bagels. Josh and Zubin decide to call the business Turntable Health. Here's Zubin speaking about the program. It's a complete revolution to a time when healthcare was about human relationships. So this allows us to bring this sort of high-touch relationship-based care that used to be reserved really for only for the rich to everybody. Rather than charging for each visit, test or procedure, Turntable patients would pay a flat fee of $80 a month. Its doctors would spend 45 minutes or more with their patients, quite different from the standard 13 to 16 minute visits in most US doctors' offices. Patients would also have 24 7 access to a doctor by email, phone, or video. The pair managed to get the businesses up and running. It's exciting. Josh feels like he's really contributing to the community in Vegas. 
All of this makes his first few months of a downtown project a total dream. Fellows were making $35,000 a year when we started, which for me was a ton of money at the time. I was like, this is the first full salary I'd ever made. And I was like, we're, we're doing great. Um, and Vegas was not expensive. I think my rent was $400 a month at the time. And I really enjoyed my work with him and what we were doing. And I really liked the people that I was meeting and hanging out with. Fresh out of college, Josh and his cohort of fellows are being given huge responsibilities. And they're rising to the occasion. I mean, we came in to this project having no jobs, being assigned jobs that didn't really exist on projects that didn't really exist. You know, we had this feeling of like, wow, we're really proving ourselves and becoming professionals or something or, you know, building our careers. Now, over these early months, Josh feels a palpable change in the streets around him. Businesses are springing up and Tony's grand vision is becoming a reality. The empty, confusing place he arrived at is teeming with new life. I had so many friends and so many people I knew, and what an amazing feeling to walk through downtown and feel like you know the business owners that like every business and can walk in and see people you know everywhere. Downtown Vegas is, quite literally, transforming before Josh's eyes, and important people are taking note. We had a lot of celebrities or mini-celebrities or just, you know, people were visiting all the time and they were coming and checking out and saying how great it was. The Downtown Project invests in people and projects that share their vision of downtown as a hub of inspiration, entrepreneurial energy, creativity, innovation, prosperity, and discovery. You know, there were new buildings and things going up all the time, and we were right in the heart of it. Meaning, purpose, community, straight out of college. What could be better? It was intoxicating to be a part of. It felt like we were at the center of the world. While the downtown project appears to be doing good work, the company isn't without its quirks. The organization was working out of a bar on Fremont, and so that was our office. Now remember, Tony Shea isn't interested in building a regular old company. He believes that if employees are having a good time, everything else will just fall into place. Pretty early on, it became a norm that we would work in the office for some amount of hours during the day. And then I think it was probably about four o'clock. Tony's favorite drink was Fernet. The shots of Fernet would come out at about four. We would all get a shot. For the uninitiated, Fernet Branca is an incredibly strong alcoholic bitter. I don't remember paying for alcohol hardly at all for the first number of months. There were gatherings every night. It was just a nonstop party. But after a heady few months, the partying, it really starts to wear on Josh. I had thought that my senior year was going to be the hardest that I had partied. I was like, okay, I'm going to get this out of my system, and then I'm going to go into the working world, and I'm going to lock it up. And then I think it was, yeah, three, four months into working at Downtown Project Rest, like, oh my God, like, if I keep drinking like this, I'm going to die. Like, this is not sustainable at all. And now, unlike in college, there's no end point. And it's not just about the drinking either. He's starting to notice other idiosyncrasies at the downtown project. They had this wall of post-its in Tony's apartment. And it was where people from the community would sort of post ideas 
or, or things they wanted to see in the downtown. But there was never any communication or clarity about like how decisions were made or what decisions were made. Among the staff who aren't making these decisions, it begins to breed unease. You could be abruptly moved from one project to another with no sense of how or why. It wasn't great in terms of like getting everybody on the same page or sort of having us work together. It just felt really scattered and I think contributed to the, the sense that like most decisions were just made like late at night when leaders were drinking together. Now, this type of leadership might be normal for companies who are, say, building apps or designing websites. But that's not what the downtown project is doing. Josh and his colleagues are channeling millions of dollars into projects that will reshape the livelihoods of locals in the area. Not long after their arrival, discontent amongst the Venture for America fellows quickly begins to coalesce around one of the downtown project's flagship focus areas, education. The messaging about what they were planning to do was really unclear, but it seemed like they might be intending to build a small private school, mostly for the children of entrepreneurs and tech people who moved to Las Vegas. Not exactly the community-focused work the Venture for America fellows are passionate about. The idea of building a private school for wealthier people in town and their kids uh, just didn't sit right with us. We had a pretty keen eye toward social justice and trying to do things that were doing right by the community. To make matters worse, the people running education don't seem to have a clue what they're doing. Fundamental questions go unanswered by senior leaders. And then I think working on schools, you know, asking questions of the person who was leading the school's effort about what do you think about charters versus public schools? You know, many, many books have been written about this question. And I think she asked me, you know, well, what, what do you think? And I got the impression it wasn't something she had either thought much about or knew much about. My sister is a teacher. For years, she, you know, we'd been having these conversations about education and I knew that if I was in a position of being like right out of college, part of a bunch of inexperienced and pretty uninformed people managing $50 million to invest in schools, like I wouldn't be able to look her in the eye. Eventually, these doubts about the education project, they begin to seep into other aspects of Josh's work. He begins to wonder, what does all of this talk about building community actually mean? I remember asking one of the senior leaders at Downtown Project, what do you mean by community? Which community are you talking about? Are you talking about people who are working on the project, people who have been living downtown for a while, people who live downtown now, people who live in Las Vegas, people who might want to move at some point? His questions are dismissed. In the coming months, Josh's time in Vegas just gets more and more chaotic. He's in over his head. I don't know if I can stay here, if that's what they're asking me to do. The optimism that fueled his move to the city is swiftly running out. Now, Josh isn't afraid of difficulty. He's overcome a lot in his life. But he soon comes to face crises on a scale he could have never imagined. There wasn't any space to talk about challenges we were facing. Doubts at work escalate into disasters. I thought about leaving the project. And when it seems that things can't get any worse, tragedy strikes. Eventually, 
Josh just hits breaking point. I got out of it as quickly as I could. And just like that, he's gone. I remember leaving Vegas, just sobbing on the road in my car by myself. It was, it was, it was just such a crazy two years. I mean, so much happened in those two years. It was insane. So, this young man arrives in Vegas with such high hopes. He's idealistic and eager to do meaningful work. Two years later, however, he's completely disillusioned and he's driving away in tears. So how did Josh end up so broken? How did we go from optimism, hope and possibility to a desperate need to escape? What really happened at the Downtown Project in those two years? It's a little bit like doing a big cannonball into a pool, like droplets go everywhere and that's just life. Like you can't control where things go. Josh's experience is just one of many. Who else did the Downtown Project touch? And who is this person at the center of it all? Tony Shea, this tech whiz turned billionaire who pioneers a theory that happiness is the secret to success, but who a few years later takes a dark and desperate turn. In this series, I'm going to answer these questions and more. This is a story about one man's quest to transform a city and the world through his particular vision of happiness. It's about the people who were seduced by that vision and the people who were left behind. But it's also a story about all of us. I've been reporting on technology for years, and I remember the hope that the internet and entrepreneurs like Tony Shea seem to offer us. But just like the Downtown Project, these idealistic tech utopias have given way to something else. Something darker, more uncertain, and even harmful. Airbnb is pricing locals out of their own towns. Instagram is under fire for making teenage girls feel suicidal. And of course, Facebook has stoked political turmoil and interfered in elections around the world. If you move fast and break things, it turns out you might leave nothing more than a pile of rubble behind. Over the next seven episodes, the story of the Downtown Project will take me inside buzzing Vegas restaurants and desolate dog parks, abandoned motels and shimmering casinos, art studios and snowy hilltop mansions. But it will also take me deep into the ideology of the tech world. It's a story about how tech idealism has seeped into our lives and changed how we think about ourselves, our relationships, and even our world. There's no going back. So what do we do about it? That's next time on The Cost of Happiness. The Cost of Happiness is a production of Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci and is reported and hosted by me, Nastran Tavakolifar. For Imperative Entertainment, the executive producer is Jason Hoke. For Vespucci, the executive producers are Daniel Turkin and Johnny Galvin. The series producer is Charlie Towler. The story editors are Mira Sharma and Matt Willis. Thomas Curry is the managing producer. Audio recording by Kathleen Conti at CDM Sound Studios in New York. Audio mix and sound design by Charlie Brandon King. Music. 
Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.